Thanks again for listening to the Park Hills Podcast. If you want more information on things we're doing, go to parkhillschurch.com or the Park Hills Church app. So we're going to have a number of podcasts in Mark 14, 15, because we're breaking up the book. We're going kind of slow through the last part of Mark. Yeah, we uh, we really slow roll the last chapters to the point that when somebody asked me point blank, they're like, when are we finishing? I was like, oh, we're going slow. Is it November? It's not November. We're all, We're not going that far. All you need to do is the answer that I gave students for years and trips when they said, are we there yet? I just kept saying five more minutes. So when someone said, when are we done? You could just say five more minutes. Five five more sermons? Or just five more minutes. There. It'll never really make any sense. And yes, that does not make sense. Everyone will get angry, but it's wonderful. It's My beautiful. favorite is all the students would always ask me, like, stop for cast. They're like, are we there yet? I'm like, yeah, man, get out. <laughs> Yeah, stopping for gas. Does it look like Myrtle Beach? Does it look like Disneyland? Yeah, get out. Whoa. No. no have it's not. fun. Have all the fun you can have right here. <laughs> so in this episode, we're really going to cover two concepts. Uh, I'll give them to you up front. It's going to be, we're going to talk about the Essenes and some speculation and some weirdness with them. If you're not sure who they are, uh, you'll have fun after this part of this episode. And then we're going to spend a little time on the on just the idea of the Passover. So we're in Mark 14 really starting in verse 10, moving through the Lord's Supper. And, you know, Alex, you preached this sermon here in Freeport about mm-hmm. about the Passover and about city, which made it a really great communion Sunday. Yeah. Right. It just pulls it, it all really well. pulls it all together. So <clears throat> let's just dive into the Essenes. And we both, you hear about them in Bible school, right? Yep. I mean, we, we they talk about these, this, these groups, they try to lay it out. And I... The reason why I'm bringing it up for this episode is there's this wonderful little verse here in verse 13 of chapter 14. And Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Now, most of the time when we read verses like that, we don't think anything of it, right? And especially when we live in a culture like ours where whether we realize it or not, we are way more egalitarian than we realize, right? Right? If I oh, saw, oh yeah, if I saw you carrying a, a jar of water, I wouldn't question your your dignity or your manhood or anything like that. I would just go, all right, sweet. But in the ancient world, especially at this time in Jerusalem, uh, the women carried the water. There were no men that carried water. Yeah. However, there's one area of the city where men were known to carry water. And this group is, this group in this area of the city is called the Essene Quarter. And so it's just to the west of the lower city of the city of David. And so many think that what would happen is the Essenes would go down, these men, and they would go down to the Pool of Siloam, which you're going to get to see in Jerusalem, not Mm -hmm. too far long from now. And they would load up there and then they would head back over because it's not too far from the Essene Quarter. And in the Essene Quarter, there's sort of this these group of people that are all living there. What's weird about the Essenes is we have no idea who they are. We have no idea where they come from. We're not even sure if they really existed. It's just a word that starts to show up in ancient literature about this group of people. So Philo uses the word, Josephus, Dio, Hippolytus, all these individuals. And then 
uh, Pliny the Elder, who's a Latin scholar, he does the same. And, and so this, this group just exists. And one of the things that we know about the group is that they were ridiculously reclusive. They didn't really hang out with anybody. They sort of did their own thing. They seemed to be very uh, critical of the Temple Mount and the Temple Complex. The entire thing seems to have been a problem for them, but they didn't respond in the way that the Zealots did. Because you and I talked about the politics right. you know, a couple of months ago. The, the zealots responded with trying to murder people, right? Yeah. The Essenes just removed themselves. This would sort of be like the Jewish Amish. Yeah, yeah, that's what thought came to my mind. Yeah. Like the I, I wouldn't even say like the super conservative, but just the separatistic to the point of non-militant, we're just going to check out of this and be our own right. little pious and, uh, you know, what's the word for you don't want to fight? Passive, pacifist. Yeah. Yeah. A little yeah. pious pacifist community. Yeah. That, and because of that, there's not like a lot written about them because they're just kind of off to the side. Right. And, and then the big question is who are they? Where were they? What did they do? Which a lot of people have linked them to the Qumran community. Mm-hmm. There's reasons that you can do that. There's other reasons why that would be suspicious because the community in Qumran doesn't ever call themselves the scenes. So this sort of like, we've just established this and attached this name to them. Right. It would make sense that they were, because back to what you said, the, the Essene community is pious pacifists. The Qumran community, which are meeting down by the Dead Sea, on the very edge of the Dead Sea, uh, they've got these mikvahs, these ceremonial cleansing places all over the place with living water next to the Dead Sea. And they're writing and writing and writing and writing and writing. Right. Right. And they're like... Very intense cleansing, like that's yes. where like the like rules. Like, I, didn't it wasn't there one like you can't use the bathroom in the camp? Yes. Like you had to walk out of the camp. But the Qumran community, that's correct me if I'm wrong. Dead Sea Scrolls, right? That's where we right. Did. So there's a big thought that maybe the uh, where we get those Dead Sea Scrolls from was the Qumran community, which was an Essene community. So the Essenes, that right mindset is what produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. And that's the connection. And there's some scholars today that have a bit of a problem with that connection. They're not convinced that the Qumran community is the Essenes. I'm not convinced that they're right for a number of different reasons. But so back to what you're saying, like, just let's just think that through. So you've got a group of people down by the Dead Sea that are so concerned about cleanliness, ceremonial cleanliness, that they are bathing in a ridiculous fashion. But on top of that, they are people of the text. They are writing things down. And what they ended up doing is when Rome was starting to destroy Jerusalem, they realized, oh no, the gig is up. We got to figure this out. So they put all of their writings in jars and they stuck all these jars in these hillsides. Uh, And you might think, how did those hills keep those things? How did they survive for like 1900 years until we started finding them in the 1950s? Well, there's a lot of reasons. First off, they're almost impossible to reach from the ground. Mm -hmm. Like, the the Dead Sea was higher back then, so it you could sort of just float up to these caves and get closer to them. But by the time of of when the shepherd boy found the first cave, nobody was in that region. It's dry, it's arid, nobody wants to go there. There's no point in going there. It's the Dead yeah. Sea. It's called the Dead Sea because everything's dead. You don't go fishing in the Dead Sea. So it would make sense that this community, this this reclusive community, who by the way, the this community in Qumran had their own calendar. 
they were convinced that the temple system was so broken that there was no reason to ever go in. However, they all served in the temple system. So some have suggested like Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, might have been in a scene or might have been a member of the Qumran community, which would make sense as to why John the Baptist is baptizing not too far from there. Right. These are all the little connections that are starting to happen. So it's very possible John the Baptist is from this group, this, this kind of crazy group, but whether he was in a scene or not, we don't know. But pulling this back to the passage and, and what, what matters, so so far what we've connected is the Essenes might have been the Qumran community, might not have been, but what the Essenes are is a group of pious individuals. And we use that because there's a bunch of different words used of them, and all of those words have a connection to the Hebrew words for uh, pure, pious, healers. Uh, so there's this sense that they were like the holdouts that were keeping everything pure or healed. They mm-hmm. were they were like the salve for the broken temple system, which would make sense that the Qumran community might in fact be Essenes, but whether they are or not doesn't really matter. The point is there is a, there's an Essene community in Jerusalem, and they were the ones that, that carried water. So then you're like, okay, so Jesus tells them to go in and find a guy who's carrying water. That's clearly in a scene, and he takes them to a spot to find an upper room where they're going to eat the final meal together. Right. Which means it's very possible that that upper room is in the Essene quarter, which is why when we go to the upper room today, we're not sure that this is the place, but it's it's plausible that it is the place or a place because it's huge, which wasn't normal back then. But then also the Essenes seem to have been wealthy in some way. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to afford places like this. So it's kind of cool. So then you go, okay, how does Jesus have a connection with the Essenes? Are the Essenes that reclusive that they're listening to God and God says, I want you to take care of my son when he gets there? And they're just like, yeah, we're ready. And then all of a sudden the disciples show up and they see a guy carrying water and they carry, follow him back. I don't know. It, to me, it's a really interesting detail. I think most people maybe don't care. Maybe most people have turned this podcast off already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's just an interesting little detail that kind of shows us there's a lot of stuff happening in the text that we just don't notice unless we slow down and think, hmm, that's weird. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting piece of prophecy because either Jesus prophesied this, which means that God put on the heart of this guy to create a room, and maybe he didn't even know what he was doing. Maybe he just, like, for some reason felt like God was telling him, set up this room, be ready. Because remember, like I mentioned in the in the sermon, the Passover Seder, was a very intentional meal with a lot of preparation. You didn't just like invite family over and say, hey, we're going to do a Seder tonight. Oh yeah, let's do a Seder. Okay, let's start going. Like this was Passover. This was really important to them. Right. Um, so, and then Jesus, just knowing that that's going to happen, knowing God's sovereignty, he's just going to work out all these details and it is as he says. Or there's there's some interesting writing about that I read about how maybe... Jesus like prearranged all of this and told the guy like, "Hey, my your signal is you're gonna carry right. water, which would be crazy." And then my disciples, I'm gonna tell them, "Look for the guy carrying water." That's like the secret password, you know. Look for the guy in the red hat with the brown jacket, sure. and then you'll know that's the contact, and you go talk to him. So there's a little bit of that. Maybe that's trying to like despiritualize the text. I I tend yep. to think Jesus is speaking prophetically here, but uh, there is some thought that that Jesus went ahead, which would mean that this guy probably was not in a scene at all, but just happened to be some guy that Jesus sure. was in. I don't, but Jesus wasn't in Jerusalem earlier, right? Like he's No, he's in, very rarely in Jerusalem, if at all. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I'm sure with all his followers, he could have made a connection and said, hey, you know, 
mm-hmm. go set up the upper room and when it's ready, do this jar thing and then my disciples will know and then I don't have to go in until I can go directly. You know, I, I think sometimes we're trying to take the spiritual, that we, some people are trying to take the spiritual out of the text. I think here, more like what you're saying, Chris, I think this is a, a cool interaction within a scene who's maybe following the Lord and the mm-hmm. Lord put on his heart, hey, go prepare a large place for a large group of people that you don't even know. And he just is faithful to that calling and then ends up with Jesus in his house. Like, yeah. how cool is that? I think that's probably exactly how it happened. At least that's what I go with. Because as you and I both know, we're not afraid of the spiritual aspect of the text, <laughs> nor supernatural. Like, God right. can do whatever he wants to do. He's miraculous, so right. he'll do what he's going to do. This, this guy is about to raise from the dead, so, you know, laying on someone's heart <laughs> to prepare a room is does not pretty a minor. challenge for me. Yeah, Right. All right, so let's talk about Passover. There, there's so much in the idea of the Passover that, you know, you trimmed down drastically what you could have said or perhaps wanted to say. So we're not going to even gonna get, get into all that here in the podcast, but what are some nuggets or some pieces of, of the idea of Passover that maybe you wanted to share in the sermon, but, you know, we're going to pull out now? Yeah, yeah, I think, I think the biggest thing is that you know, like I mentioned in the sermon, Jesus lived in the Old Testament, and the Old Testament, if you look at all the feasts and festivals that are commanded, there's a lot of really cool, unique meaning imprinted into the way that the Jewish people would hmm. observe those. Mm-hmm. And some sometimes it's lost. I remember we used to teach, uh, this at my old church, we used to teach middle schoolers the festivals of the Old Testament. And everybody's like, oh, that doesn't that just sound boring? Like, why are you teaching the festivals? I'm like, there is so much meaning that you see Jesus himself reframes, mm-hmm. you know, like the Feast of Tabernacles is all about, like, you know, God gave us a place to live and, and we're going to dwell in these temporary places because the temple was temporary at the time. And it's like, oh, the temple's not temporary anymore. And so, right. and I think that the biggest point that I want to reiterate with the podcast here is that all those bits and pieces are not finished or completed by Jesus. I think sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we say, we don't do any of that anymore because Jesus came. No, we just do them in the way that Jesus reframed them because all of those aspects of the Old Testament that that needed to happen for our relationship with God to be what it is still need to happen today. Like we are still sinful. We still need a mediator between us and God. We still need a place for God to dwell on earth because post Eden, that type of place is non-existent anymore. We still need a sacrifice to be made. We still need atonement or payment for our sins. So all these different things that got put in place, it's not just like, oh, Jesus, like, said, nope, it's done, it's all me now. Really what he said is, I am the one who is what you're looking for. Right. And and that was the whole purpose of the Old Testament. We call that the Christ-centered hermeneutic, right? The whole right. Old Testament is really building to all of these moments are wrapped up in Jesus. So I think I mentioned this more in second service than first service, so if you're going back to watch, mm-hmm. watch second service. But things like the temple, it's not that Jesus has thrown away the temple, it's now he's placed the temple in the human heart, right? Right. By being a place. What is a temple? It's just a place where deity dwells. The priesthood. It's not that Jesus has ended the priesthood, but now he has made all believers his priest. What is a priest? Just somebody who can communicate with the divine. And so you look at Passover, and Passover is this time when for the rescue of God's people, 
something had to die and give its life so that God's people could be rescued. So Passover hasn't ended. God continues to pass over mm-hmm. our sins on us, but the Passover lamb, we don't have to continually sacrifice. We don't have to go through all these steps anymore because the Passover lamb, the eternal Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so that, there's a cool little nugget in there about how, you know, well, I use this term atonement, right? That's just payment, atonement, sure. payment for sin. Um, the Passover ritual and, and sacrifice and observance in Israel was not an atonement sacrifice. That was Yom Kippur, right? The Day right. of Atonement. Um, but I think there's atonement ideas in there that the the Lamb itself is dying, so that sin and death are or not sin, but just death. Death is passed over, and so sure. You know, sometimes we'll do uh, modern day seder's that Jesus, you know, would have been at the seder meal. We'll do those in church. I think those are really cool. I've been a part of some of them. Probably not conversant enough to like lay out the whole thing. But one thing that's really interesting to me with that is when you do a seder, and often you you're bringing in a group to do a seder with you. But they say put up doorposts. It's kind of like how we put up the cross. They say right. put up doorposts because that is symbolic. That's a cool little nugget. And if you ever do have a chance to participate in a seder, I highly recommend it. Yeah. They're like even the menu. The menu has uh, five or six different elements. Each one of those elements means something. You know, it's kind of like when we eat commemorative meals, you know, we kind of talk about the difference between celebration and commemoration. Like, what is the traditional Thanksgiving meal? We eat a turkey. Well, why do you eat turkey? I don't I don't know. Does the average American know? Maybe they could tie it something to like the Mayflower and they ate a turkey there. But that really has no meaning. Why do we eat cranberry relish? I eat cranberry relish one time a year right. at Thanksgiving. And I eat stuffing probably one time a year at Thanksgiving. Why do we eat all these pieces? I don't know. They taste good and they go together. Right. But you look at the Seder meal and the Passover meal, and each one of those was really interesting because it had meaning behind it. Why do we eat the bitter herb? It reminds us of the bitterness of the labor of our ancestors. Why do we eat the egg or the char set, this like mixture of fruits and nuts? It reminds us of the mortar. And you know, be a part of someone who's an expert doing this. Sure. I think that's really cool to do. Um, but yeah, just just a lot of meaning in there. So th- those are just a couple nuggets that I would have loved to dug a little bit deeper into. I tried to summarize like, you know, what is it like thirty chapters of Exodus in sure a couple more twenty. Chapters. Yeah, thirty chapters of Exodus, and really the Passover idea keeps getting re- recapitulated throughout the text again and again and again and again and again. So it's not even necessarily just the 30 chapters. It's the entire scripture, and you got it all in one sermon. Yeah, and not even – I had to, like, fit it into half a sermon because you also gave me the the rest of the <laughs> passage that I had to deal with, you know, <laughs> Judas and some other stuff in there. The, oh, Judas. But – oh, yeah, one thing I did want to say at the end, though, like yeah. – and, and this was more of a bigger point of the sermon, uh, but just so interesting that – when Jesus takes that intentional script, he rewrites it. And so when we do communion, we are actually celebrating Passover right. with Jesus in his new framing. And I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, I had a conversation with this with one of my brethren friends when I was in college. So I can't remember. I found out that Church of the Brethren and the Brethren Church are actually two different things. I don't remember which one of those what he was. But he was a part of a, a brethren church where he said he came to my church and visited with me a little bit 
And we did communion in similar to how we do it here. You know, you sure. take a little wafer, you drink a little cup, you follow along, you do some prayers, things like that. And he's like, that just blew me away how how meaningless it felt to him. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And Because at, at that church that I was going to, there would be like a good three minutes of self-reflection before mm. you took communion. And that felt meaningful to me. He's like, when we do communion, it's an entire meal. It's actually a meal. It's not, you know, like we will call it a meal, like take this meal, take this bread, take this cup. Um, but it's like, you know, a half of a quarter of an ounce of, of juice and a tiny little wafer. Uh, I thought that was really interesting, just that observance of what Jesus is doing is he's having a whole meal. Sure. And it's not just a random meal. It's an intentional meal. And then he rewrites the script on that meal. And I'm sure he did all the other elements, but then also adds this part where, hey, we are celebrating the Passover. And as you continue to celebrate the Passover, now you need to celebrate my portion of the Passover. And it's the the cup in the body that we're now remembering the lamb in this way. And so I think that's really cool. I, I don't know that's gonna that, that will change our practice here at Park Hills, hmm. but it's just a good mindset to be reminded of that it's not just like a quick little eat drink thing. It's sure it's really standing in for an entire concept of that Passover meal. That's what communion is. It's it's a part of the Passover. It's not uh, just its own little side thing. Yeah, no, I think that's huge. And I think if you just stop and think about what it means, this is <clears throat> one of the reasons why we don't do it every single week or why we don't do it as much as maybe some people would like us to, because we're trying to make it special when we do it. Mm-hmm. But having grown up in another tradition of the faith, it doesn't have the same significance that maybe some of the other traditions give it. So that is a it's a moment of conviction and thinking about like, okay, so what, what are we doing with it? Are we going to make, you know, are we going to make communion more? Are we going to think about how to make it more, show people what it's really connecting to without going into the entire Passover, every single message, right? Cause we, we don't have 25 minutes to explain communion, but at the same time you are tying into something and it is being redone and renewed in a, in a beautiful way. And then as many have pointed out, you know, if you go to John six, there's this, serious discussion going on where Jesus says, you know, you must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. And they're all like, no, we're out. We're not (laughs) like, that's too much. We're not following you. But there seems to be some kind of connection to no, make me everything of you, right? The very basic things that you want in your life, I will provide them. Are you going to surrender completely to me? And I don't think we think about that when we're doing communion. I don't think we think about that with church in general. A lot of times we just think about, I'm going to go to church today and they're going to give me something that I need and then I'm going to take it this week and maybe follow it, maybe not, but I'm a Christian and everything's fine. And it's like the church seems to be tapping into something much bigger, much deeper than sometimes you and I, um, and I mean that just the listener and I, you know, all of us yeah. Christians, mm-hmm. we don't always think about the depth of what we're actually partaking in. Yeah, and, and even to think about like how frequently should we do this, you know, there are certain traditions and even churches within our tradition that do this every week. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I grew up in a church that does it every month. We do it every other month here. Uh, it's just, it, there's there's just this interesting little verse in 1 Corinthians 11. You know, it, it's interesting that the Gospels include this, but then Paul in 1 Corinthians is, actually he's chastising the Corinthians because right. they're like doing communion terribly. He calls it the Lord's Supper. 
Uh, and he talks about some of them are eating and drinking and getting drunk, and some of them are, are not allowed into the meal. So there was clearly a whole meal involved with sure. this. But it also seems like it's pretty frequent if they're having a Lord's Supper. Um, but then, you know, this is often the verse we quote if we're not preaching through a gospel. When we do communion, you know, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread, given thanks. You know, this is my body, this is my blood. Uh, and then verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay, for as often as you do it. But how often should we do it? Right. I don't know. There's no answer. There is no answer. And I, I think there's not a right or wrong answer, but it kind of makes me wonder, just, just thinking out loud here, like, should we do this every week because it's that important? But then on the other hand, should we do this once a year because that's when Jesus did it? Like, should we just, should this be a meal our church does around Easter mm-hmm. every year and we just do communion, but it's a whole meal? And like, wouldn't that be super cool? Yeah. I don't know. Those are two extreme sides of this. Like I said, we're probably not changing our practice here (laughs) on the podcast just because I'm talking about it, but just things I'm thinking about. But this shows you how much I do want people to see. This is how much we do think about these things. We do have these discussions at a staff level. Are we doing it enough? Are we not doing it enough? Are we doing it, you know, at different points in, in our teaching, we'll actually incorporate an extra one. Sometimes we'll push it back a week or do it the week before because we see that it fits the message really well. So we do put some thought into it, even if, you know, folks maybe don't think about it that way. So, nope, very, very interesting, good stuff. The Essenes and the Passover, fun things to talk about. <laughs>